she's your queen to be a queen to be forever a queen who'll do whatever his highness desires she's your queen to be a vision of perfection an object of affection to quench your royal fire completely free from infection to be used at your discretion waiting only for your direction your queen to be Welcome to Sup Media Reviews, the podcast that never needs spoiler alerts because it takes you back in time to relive the nostalgia of classic TV shows and films that you've probably already seen. I'm your host, Kiara, and each week I'll dive into the archives to bring you my take on movies and TV shows from at least 20 years ago. From cult classics to forgotten gems, I'll review them all and give my honest opinion on their impact and whether or not they still hold up today. Join me as we revisit the iconic characters, memorable moments, and timeless themes that made these shows and films so special. So take a break from adulting and get ready for a trip down memory lane with Sup Media Reviews. What's up, Home Slices? Thanks so much for tuning in to Sub Media Reviews. I'm your host, Kiara, and I'm reviewing the classic 1988 comedy, Coming to America. The movie features Eddie Murphy as Prince Hakeem, slash a bunch of different characters, Arsenio Hall as Simi, slash a bunch of different characters, Sherry Headley as Lisa McDowell, and John Amos as Cleo McDowell. This movie is a classic in my community and is officially the oldest film I've reviewed to date, so I'm super excited to dig into this comedic masterpiece. But before we do, here are a few fun facts about the movie. The first fun fact is that most of the dance performed by the royal dancers before presenting Prince Akeem's queen-to-be is a high-tempo rendition of the dance from Michael Jackson's Thriller from 1983. The dance was choreographed by an 18-year-old or 19-year-old Paula Abdul. Now, I feel like that's pretty amazing. Before Paula Abdul was on American Idol, I had no idea who she was. I didn't know that she had a little bit of a singing career and that she was a famous dancer. I know none of that. But I feel weird that this particular scene is set in the African country and they didn't get anyone who specialized in African dance to choreograph the dance. I mean, the scene is iconic. The dance goes really well. It is so well syncopated and performed. It's visually stunning, all of that good stuff. But it's like, okay, we had to get a teenage Paula Abdul. We couldn't get someone who specializes or studies African dance to do this. Okay. All right. <laughs> 
let's move on. The second fun fact is that the homeless men that received the money from Prince Akeem are the Duke brothers, Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici from Trading Places, which came out in 1983 and was also directed by John Landis. In that movie, Billy Ray Valentine, who was played by Eddie Murphy, was responsible for the Dukes losing their fortune. The Dukes theme from the movie can be heard in the background. Apparently, Landis didn't like the idea because it would be too self-referential, even though he's known for breaking the fourth wall in his movies. It led to a conflict with the producer, George Folsey Jr., until star Eddie Murphy decided that it was a great idea. So... I haven't seen Trading Places and I actually don't think I've seen any Eddie Murphy movie that predates Coming to America, but I should definitely put it on the list. But it was pretty cool just to know that they inserted some actors from a previous movie to kind of break that fourth wall. It's pretty cool. And the final fun fact is that following the film's success, CBS produced a pilot for a weekly sitcom spinoff. The pilot starred Tommy Davidson as Prince Tariq and Paul Bates as Oha. The pilot went unsold but was televised on July 4th, 1989 as an episode of CBS Summer Playhouse. If you want to check out Coming to America, you can rent it on Amazon Prime as well as other streaming sites as of the recording of this episode. I typically try to review movies that are available on streaming sites for free, but sometimes my heart just goes where my heart goes, okay? When I can't find movies for free, I like to buy them or rent them on Amazon Prime because the IMDb x-ray feature is super helpful in identifying actors and characters for my reviews. But let's talk about my personal connection to this film. This movie is comedic gold, and more specifically, Black comedic gold. The quotes, the characters, the places are so iconic in the Black community, and it's such a part of the Black zeitgeist that you may not even need to see the movie to know these quotes and places if you grow up in the Black community. Zamunda, Juices and Berries, Sexual Chocolate, McDowell's, etc. Like, not seeing or not liking this movie is an offense that will get your Black heart revoked. This movie, to me, is Eddie Murphy's masterpiece. Like, this movie came out before I was born. So I didn't personally get to witness his meteoric rise through his comedy specials or his run on SNL or any of his earlier movies. But this is the earliest film that I saw of his. And based on what I learned from the movies that made us, Eddie had tons of creative control in coming to America. The movie highlights, you know, his creativity. But we also get to see a little bit more of his acting range and ability because we get to see his character as this, you know, serious prince who's experiencing culture shock, as well as the silly B characters that are really only there to make us laugh. So to me, this is Eddie's most iconic work to date. And I mentioned this earlier, but on Netflix, there's a series called Movies That Made Us. And in each episode, they do a deep dive into how really iconic movies get made. And the one on Coming to America was really insightful. And you should check it out if you haven't already, because there's actually a lot of behind the scenes dramas that went on when it came to producing this movie. And finally, I feel like this movie just has a good plot that flows pretty well. We have a prince who's really disenchanted with his culture's customs and is breaking away from traditionalism to find love. We get to see culture shock. We see a kind, pretty woman who gets the guy. We see black entrepreneurship. The film is like black as hell and it's super long, but we get to see some famous faces like Samuel L. Jackson, Cuba Gooding Jr. or Louis Anderson. And we get to have a great time laughing. So this is a classic film and a must see. I'm so excited to share my perspective on this movie. So let's chat. 
So in the opening scene, we open up with an aerial shot of the fictional African country of Zamunda. And right away, it looks like a movie set. So the graphics in this scene do not hold up, okay? We begin to see this royal palace. And on the inside, there's this very ornate hall. And this is where we begin to see the extravagant lifestyle of Prince Akeem and the royal family, okay? There is an 11 person band that plays soothing music for him to wake up to. We see three Three beautiful rose petal throwers, one of which who is Garcelle B. I can't pronounce her last name, but she played Fancy on the Jamie Foxx show. We also see Oha, who is one of the royal attendants there. If you don't know who Oha is, later on he sings Queen to Be. So Oha is one of the royal attendants that we see throughout the movie, and he's there to orchestrate the morning routine for Prince Hakeem and it is extravagant and it requires way too many people. There's <laughs> way too many people helping him with his morning routine and I'm gonna talk about that later. We find out that it is Prince Hakeem's 21st birthday and we see Eddie Murphy, a young Eddie Murphy who's in shape but not ripped and he has a yakky ponytail at the back of his head and when Oha claps people just do stuff to make sure that Prince Hakeem is ready for the day okay. They make sure there's wipers to wipe his butt when he goes to the bathroom. They brush his teeth. We see that there are naked ladies who bathe a very dry Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy's shoulders were dry AF in that tub and I was like can we at least pretend that he's getting a bath? I'm like that man was dry. <laughs> Anyways and during that scene with the bathers that's where we get the iconic line the royal penis is clean your highness okay like I said they brush his teeth they help him gargle they clothe him they lay out a carpet of rose petals it's exaggerated extravagance for a member of the royal family. And we also find out that because it's his 21st birthday, he's going to meet his wife-to-be for the first time. And we also see that Prince Akeem really isn't excited by that. So next up, it's time for us to meet the king and the queen. We meet King Joffy Joffer, who is played by James Earl Jones, and Queen Aeolion, who is played by Madge Sinclair. They're having breakfast with Prince Ikeen from opposite ends of this super long banquet table. So a fun fact that I'm sure everyone knows by now is that the king and queen in this movie also voice Mufasa and Sarabi in Disney's 1994 hit, The Lion King. The table is so long and they are so far apart that they have to use an intercom system to communicate. So this movie does a really good job of making fun of royal extravagance for extravagance sake. Like showing how people get so rich so that their lives can be easier, but then they reach some type of threshold where they're so rich that their lives become impractical again. It's pretty funny. And it wasn't until I was taking notes on this movie that I realized that there's actually a little bit of commentary on class in this film. There's actually a lot of commentary on class, particularly when they get to the hood. But I guess we'll talk a little bit about that later. His parents realize somehow from so far away that something's wrong with Prince Akeem. And they ask him like, hey, what's going on? You don't seem to be in your normal spirits. And he doesn't want to talk through the intercom. So he decides to go to the other end of the table where his parents are. And once he gets to the other end of the table, we see that his parents aren't really involved in his life. Like his father looks at him and he's like, you grew a mustache. And the queen is like, yo, it's been a year. And I'm like, it's been a year since what? Y'all haven't seen y'all son in a year? Or the king hasn't seen his son in a year? What you been doing? Y'all live in the same house. What you <laughs> 
<laughs> his parents are not involved. Okay. And it's like, would you want a parent that doesn't even know that you have a mustache to pick your spouse? I don't freaking think so. Okay. <laughs> But Akeem starts to express his discontent with all the pampering. And right away that we see that he's like disenchanted by the royal lifestyle where basically everything is done for him. Something inside of him wants to reject some of these customs and be more normal. He wants to do things on his own, including finding his own wife. So his father essentially attributes Akeem's concerns to his anxiety about meeting his new bride, who's actually been groomed to be a queen. Akeem spent like a good few minutes saying like, oh, all of the rose petal stuff and people to wipe my butt and brushing my teeth. Like, I want to be able to do some of that stuff on my own. And then he says, like, I want to pick my own wife. And then the king, like with laser focus on that and doesn't really hear all of Prince Akeem's concerns, which is really unfortunate. So basically, his mother and father tell us a little bit more about their own arranged marriage and their love story and how it worked out for them. But Akeem is like, I want something different than that. He wants someone who loves him for him and not because of his status or his wealth. So his dad basically says, yo, all of that is overrated. And, you know, parents just don't understand. So enter Simi, who is played by Arsenio Hall. He comes into the dining area and the king and queen find him extremely annoying. Okay, I think Simi is supposed to be an aide to Prince Akeem and like his best friend or whatever. I don't know that we actually got his real like position, but it kind of doesn't matter. As we're hearing more from Simi, I'm starting to realize that Arsenio Hall didn't really make any effort to have a true African accent or anything close to an African accent. <laughs> it's actually pretty bad. I feel like he basically used his own voice. I don't remember his accent being so bad. And I was like, you didn't even try. Uh, <laughs> Simi and Akeem go to this gym slash practice facility where they spar with these sticks, some type of defensive fighting training or something. So Eddie Murphy is shirtless wearing hammer pants and Arsenio is wearing a crop top shirt with hammer pants and a tiny hoop earring. I feel like as a society, we associate showing your midriff with femininity, but I feel like the crop top looks good on Arsenio. And while the two of them are sparring, they're having a conversation about how crazy it is for a king to want a wife with an opinion. I mean, can you believe it? I want to point out that Simi is using normal phrases with an African twist. And this happens a lot in this movie where they take American concepts and insert one African thing into it. And basically that's Zamundan culture. <laughs> and it's, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but it is very funny. And so Simi says things like sweat from a baboon's ass or hippopotamus shit or big booze like cassava melons. And it's like, I feel like swapping out one word of an American phrase with an African associated noun is hilarious and inaccurate. And like, it feels like they're not trying, but it's also for comedic effect. I don't know. I feel weird about it, but it is funny to me. Also, the stunt work during this fight scene is only kind of decent. Like Eddie's stunt double is really ripped and more toned than he is. So when we flip back to Eddie Murphy's little bird chest, I don't know if he thinks there were fools or anything, but we, we know that wasn't you, Eddie. But Arsenio's stunt double is a little better. They look more alike. So later... As this scene continues to go on, Arsenio's accent starts annoying me because I really feel like he didn't try. I feel, <laughs> I feel, 
I really feel annoyed by that. But basically, Simi says that Akeem shouldn't buck the system and Akeem says it's time to change the game, right? You know, he wants to mix things up. So it's party time. There's a royal engagement party to reveal Akeem's queen to be. Someone is hawking royal engagement t-shirts outside of the events. And I'm like, this is another example of them, you know, going hard with putting an African twist on an American thing in this movie but there are elephants outside and tons of well-dressed Zimundans arriving to be a part of this celebration the African garb is really pretty and really colorful so in this moment while I was taking notes I literally realized that this wasn't just like a social engagement this event is literally where Prince Akeem gets engaged and not only do you get engaged in front of like a large group of people like you meet the person your queen to be for the first time and I feel like I didn't understand or appreciate this when watching this movie before but I feel like a little bit grossed out by that like if you're gonna arrange my marriage can we at least do this like as a family with like maybe 15 of us coming together you want me to meet my queen to be in front of the whole country and I'm just supposed to accept her as she is and all no no (laughs) and it's nothing against arranged marriages if that's a part of your culture like cool but it just feels very strange that it's like royalty there's literally a party to celebrate you meeting that person for the first time and having it be on public display instead of in private it's like really strange yeah but anyways a man comes forward to present his daughter then a large woman makes her way through the crowd and Akeem is relieved when she's only the person announcing his fiance's entrance the fiance's name is Amani Izzy so the floor clears and a large dance troupe that's scantily clad with beaded uniforms and feather headdresses does this highly synchronized dance just to make the fiance's entrance that much more exciting like I said earlier the dance was choreographed by Paula Abdul which is crazy AF because she was like 18 or 19 at the time and like why couldn't they get someone who knows or studies African dance I don't really know but they end the dance by creating a walkway for Amani Izzy the fiance who's played by Vanessa Bell Calloway she looks super beautiful with this high half ponytail and tons of weave and she has a fantastic body in a gold long sleeve gown with a long train and it has a peekaboo neck to show her cleavage and then a sheer part over her abdomen to show that she isn't fat so she has this (laughs) lovely dress it's a really beautiful dress I'm really into it and then as she's walking down this aisle that has been created by these dancers Oha starts singing she's your queen to be a queen to be forever a queen who do whatever his highness desires. Yes, okay. I think we get so caught up in how poorly he sings the song that we're not listening to the lyrics. <laughs> because I was listening to the lyrics and I was like, I don't remember this song being this bad. Like the first part of the song is already bad enough. Like she's there to do with his highness desires. It's like, oh, okay, that's not too bad I guess considering he's a prince or whatever but then in the song he says that the queen to be is free from infection waiting for your direction the object of affection to deal with at your discretion (laughs) so the song highlights this kind of blind obedience and misogyny and this these outdated marital 
expectations, at least when it comes to, I'll say, the idea of Americanized marriage is what I'll say. So it's a parody, but I guess art imitates life, right? For some people, those are still their marital standards. And if that's your culture, cool beans. But as an American who is currently married, there's no way that I would walk down any aisle to a song like (laughs) this. Walking down the aisle so I can be an object of your affection to be used at your discretion. I am free from infection, though. Anyways. <laughs> she finishes walking down the aisle. Of course, she looks beautiful. And Prince Hakeem actually wants to spend time alone with Imani. This is another iconic scene. But nobody understands what's happening. Prince Hakeem, again, is breaking tradition by asking her to spend some time with him in private. Again... Because this is not like a small family gathering, a sheer number of people who are here at this royal engagement party is a lot. So for you to just be taking her into a back room for y'all to talk just a little bit is very strange. It's like we got thousands of people here waiting on you. What the heck is going on, right? So anyway, he takes her to this room and he wants to get to know her. What do you like? And basically the girl is a robot who's been trained to like whatever he likes and to do whatever Akeem likes. And he doesn't like that she doesn't have a mind or opinions of her own. And I can see how he would get bored with that. But I feel like there are tons of men who aren't even princes, who don't even have very much money to their name, who want women like Amani Izzy. <laughs> And it's like, if I was raised to be a royal man's wife and my instructions were to like anything he liked, cool. Because my life is going to be easy peasy lemon squeezy from here on out, right? Like I am going to be living in the lap of luxury. But if you want me to do whatever you want me to do and you don't have a dollar to your name, see, this is that's. <laughs> And I'm going to live a life of misery and verbal abuse and all that kind of stuff. No way. So men, women have opinions and you need to just get used to it. Okay. But yeah, no opinions, no fuss, no muss. You know, half of making relationships work is making your way through conflict and living with no conflict sounds good on paper, but all it really means is that you don't have to change. And I feel like that's what a lot of men want to not have to change. But back to the scene, even when Akeem commands her to not obey him, she says no. And then he plays this weird game with Simon says where he gets her to bark like a dog and make ape noises and hop on one leg right out of the door as King Joffy Joffer walks in to talk to Akeem. So they make everybody at this royal engagement wait and they go for a stroll in like the royal palace gardens or something and a zebra runs by and some baby elephants run by and Akeem basically says he's not ready. He's like, I've never even left Zamunda. I've never traveled to see the outside world. And his dad assumes, makes another assumption, second time in this movie, that he does not want to get married before he sows his royal oats and gets all the debauchery out of his system before he settles down. So Akeem basically is going to have 40 days to see the world. And then when he comes back, he's going to marry Imani. And King Jaffe returns to the event to announce the news of Akeem's travels. And then he sends all the guests home and they're going to come back in 40 days to see this wedding. All right. So the real plan, however, gets revealed when Akeem tells Simi that 
Simi's like really happy about the 40 days of fornication, but Akeem reveals to him that he's actually going to use his time wisely so he can find a woman that he really loves. So they flip a coin to decide between LA and New York and it lands on heads to show that Prince Hakeem is actually on the Zamundan currency. And so they pick New York and then they decide to pick Queens to find a queen, which is very silly and cute. So they arrive in New York City and when they land, they have hella bags that are super expensive and name brand. They have extravagant furs, heavy ornate jewelry, but they don't want anyone to know that Akeem is royal. They look super conspicuous <laughs> and that's part of the humor. So they catch a cab to the most common part of Queens where they pretend to be poor African exchange students. But as of right now, they do not look the part. They still look like royalty. The cab driver takes them to the hood in Queens and Akeem is excited to be amongst the regular lower class homeless folks who throw their trash out onto the streets. The cab driver unloads the bags and we get our first barbershop scene where both Arsenio and Eddie play different characters. The most shocking Eddie Murphy character is the older Jewish man. The makeup for him is so good that you would never know it was Eddie Murphy. And this scene is one of the most iconic ones because the black barbershop is like a cornerstone in the community when it comes to male conversation and masculinity. So this feels really true to form when it comes to being like a part of the black community. And so these barbers and patrons in the barbers start talking about boxing and this is where we get the famous line you know his mama named him clay i'ma call him clay when they're talking about cassius clay and we also see a young Cuba Gooding Jr. in the barber chair. So yeah, this is a, a cute scene. So it's time for them to get some new digs, okay? Like they need a place to stay while they're here for 40 days. And they approach a foul-mouthed landlord about renting a room and they flash a huge wad of cash to get his attention. So when they enter the building, the local homeless folks and thieves start taking all of their luggage. This is one of the more obvious displays of Akeem not understanding how dangerous it is to be among the commoners but for Akeem ignorance is bliss and it's one of the more pleasant things about his character at least to me he's just so happy to be somewhere where his every need isn't catered to and so we see the place where they'll be living and they don't even have their own bathroom. There is one bathroom on the whole floor and they have to share it with like a number of other apartments. And he shows them the bathroom that has flies everywhere. It's disgusting. It's not clean. And he claims that since they're from Africa, they should understand the bug problems. And I was like, mm. another thing that this <laughs> movie does a good job is showing the ignorance of how people perceive Africa and that comes up quite a bit in this movie so yeah Akeem basically asked for the poorest room and it's super poor there's police tape on the door there's one window facing a brick wall it's a hot mess and there's a chalk outline of a blind man and his seeing eye dog on the floor. Also, there's a gigantic mouse <laughs> running around the floor as well. And Akeem takes it gladly. Akeem is like so excited. He goes out onto the fire escape and he's screaming, F you. Yes, F you too. <laughs> like he's so happy about his newfound freedom, even though he does not understand what it means to be in like a true condition of poverty. 
I have like an affinity for characters who have like a positive attitude, kind of no matter what. That's just like, I kind of gravitate to those people. And I try to have that same mindset sometimes. But it's kind of refreshing to see him being this like spoiled prince and just loving being out of that environment for the first time. So they go outside to find everyone in the neighborhood wearing their clothes and a man even tries to sell them their own golden toiletries. Simi is mad because they got robbed. Simi is like very unhappy with this whole situation. He's mad that he's not going to get his 40 days and 40 nights of fornication. And Simi has the right attitude, I think. It's Akeem who's so excited to be away. And Simi is like, look, I live in a palace back home. Like, this ain't for me. So Simi is indicative of like probably how most people would be in this situation. And Akeem is just this really like idealistic person who just wants to observe the world through a different perspective than the one he had before. So Prince Akeem, because he's rich and I guess has no concept for spending money, apparently, (laughs) does not care that they got robbed. And he's like, we need to dress like New Yorkers anyway. So they go to a souvenir stand and they buy all the I love New York apparel that they can find. They have hats, jeans and jackets that literally make them look like tourists, but at least they don't look rich anymore. So outside the souvenir shop, they see a grid of nine TVs outside of a storefront where we get our first look at a Soul Glow commercial. Why don't stores have nine TVs outside of their establishments anymore. I feel like a lot of shows back in the day had storefronts that had TVs stacked on top of each other that were always playing like content or whatever. And that just doesn't happen anymore. It's very interesting. But anyways, Soul Glow, another key element of this (laughs) movie, just let yourself the little so silky smooth just let it shine through yeah just let yourself so glow (laughs) so yes so glow is basically jerry cold juice and akeem is like hmm maybe i need to cut off my princely lock so i can look the part right and so his princely lock is his yaki braid that's bobby pinned to the back of his head and he heads back to the barbershop where these guys are still talking about boxing i don't know how they're still on this topic but one of the barber says that mike tyson looks like a bulldog that's hilarious and then they have this disagreement or argument about joe lewis and rocky marciano whatever whatever and eddie sits down and the barber asks about his hair And he's like, what kind of chemicals did you put in here? And Prince Akeem is like, no, it's just juices and berries, which is another. (laughs) Look, so back in the day when I turned 20, I went natural. I cut off my permed and relaxed hair and let my hair grow naturally. And it's like kinky, curly form. And two of my aunts saw that I went natural and asked me if I was using juices and berries. And it's like low key offensive. However, probably like a year or two later, they went natural and they took all of their children natural as well. So say what you got to say, but I am a pioneer in my family. 
Okay. Anyways, the barber ends up charging Eddie Murphy $8 to quickly cut off his princely lock with (laughs) a pair of scissors. It's actually pretty funny. So now it's time to go to the club. Eddie and Arsenio or Prince Ikeem and Simi go to a club that looks kind of like a roller rink and they are looking for Akeem's queen and they run through tons of women. There's like a, a scene where each woman gets like 10 or 12 seconds and we see that none of them are for him. One of them worships the devil. One is a sex addict. One of them's a gold digger with a preference for men with BMWs. One has a husband on death row. There's a set of previously conjoined twins who are on their first date there's a woman who enjoys group sex there's another woman who claims to have been Joan of Arc in a previous life there's another set of rapping twins my name is Peaches and I'm the best all the DJs want to fill my breasts there's a wannabe there's Arsenio Hall and drag who wants to tear Simi and Akeem apart and yes all of these women have severe problems (laughs) and after a night of going to all the clubs in Queens, they feel kind of defeated. Like, how are we ever going to find my queen if all the ladies here in New York have severe emotional problems, which is what Akeem thought. (laughs) So they end up coming across Mr. Clarence, who is one of the barbers at the barbershop, and they get his advice on where to find nice women. And Mr. Clarence is like, if you want to find nice women, you can't go to no club. You need to go to like a library or church, or you can come with me to this Black Awareness Rally. So they go to the Black Awareness Rally. It's another iconic scene in the movie. Arsenio Hall is playing a character called Reverend Brown, who's emceeing the Miss Black Awareness Rally pageant. And he starts to do this sermonette on how the female contestants who are a part of the pageant about how God made their bodies. It's pretty gross. (laughs) He talks about their bodies in like the holiest, nastiest way possible. It's it's gross. It's just gross. Sammy wants Akeem to pick from one of the pageant girls and go home, but Akeem is waiting patiently. He still has 39 days to go before he has to go back home. Like, Sammy is trying to get him to get this stuff over with. He really just doesn't have the patience for it. So in this scene, because the preacher is turning the pageant into this sermon about God's goodness, there's a part of the rally where the audience basically becomes a black church. There's like a lot of amens and a lot of calls and responses. And this is Akeem's first exposure to this, and he's really bewildered. I never noticed that this was another Black element that they folded into this movie. And I love it. Like, the Black church particularly like the AME and Baptist community, like the types of churches that do this kind of call and response thing. And it's a very responsive audience. I never understood or considered what that would look like from a different culture's perspective. And it was interesting to get to see Eddie Murphy's character react to being put into this situation and taking part in the call and response too. I actually really liked that and never really considered what that meant to have a movie that was so successful depict something like the Black church or the Black barbershop. Like it actually is really iconic. So Reverend Brown introduces Mr. Randy Watson and his band, and no one is excited to see him perform except for one of the barbers. It's not clear why, but the city is just not fond of him. They don't like him. And is it because he is not talented? Did he do something to them? They do not like Randy Watson. I would love some backstory on this. Has anybody written any fan fiction on Randy Watson? (laughs) 
<laughs> that would be hilarious. Does anybody know why they hate him? It's so funny. But him... <laughs> Randy Watson is actually being played by Eddie Murphy again, and the band is called Sexual Chocolate. And he begins to sing The Greatest Love of All, and no one is into it. And he does a bad job. I believe the children are future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Like, he's not, he's not doing a good job. They don't really like it, and no one's clapping for him, okay? During the performance, we see that one of the food sponsors for the Black Awareness Rally is a McDonald's-esque restaurant run by John Amos. The song ends, Randy drops the mic, says sexual chocolate a few times, and nobody claps. <laughs> we see that Cleo McDowell is the owner of the McDowell's food sponsor for the event, and he has two daughters, one of which helps to organize the rally. The daughter who helped organize the rally is Lisa, and she gets brought up to the stage. Horny Reverend Brown says that she looks so good, someone ought to put her on a plate and sop her up with a biscuit, <laughs> which is another phrase that we say quite a bit. And she does a quick speech about how the children are the future and that we need to rebuild Lincoln Park. And they pass collection plates looking for the kind of money that folds and not the kind that jingles. So her boyfriend with the soul glow, Jerry Curl, is in the front row and he does not contribute anything he doesn't put any money in the collection plate but Akeem is so enthralled with Lisa's beauty that he puts a big wad of money in the collection plate he has found his queen in Queens Reverend Brown does a shameless plug for McDowell's so now Akeem actually knows where to find Lisa so it's the next day and Akeem is orchestrating ways to get closer to Lisa. So they get jobs as janitors at McDowell's. McDowell's is in a legal battle with McDonald's and we hear about how the two places are different and the differences between McDowell's and McDonald's are very minimal. <laughs> we see a Louis Anderson as an extra with almost no lines. We see that Akeem doesn't know how to mop. They also get these hideous uniforms that are red and black plaid with golfer caps. And Akeem ends up introducing himself to Lisa, who is pretending to do stuff on a computer in the back office of the McDowell's. She's a really sweet lady who entertains Akeem, even though he's really forward and weird. And their first interaction ends really awkward. And so this movie shows these transitional shots of the city in New York. And things just look so different. Like that scene ended with him and Lisa and things didn't go that well. And so there's a transition shot of the city. And I'm looking around. I don't recognize the names of any of these vehicles. I saw a radio shack. It's so weird to be watching these movies and literally being transported back to 1988, you know, a time before I was born. It's pretty neat. So Soul Glow plays again and enter Eric LaSalle, who is playing Daryl, Lisa's boyfriend. We find out, you know, he has his Soul Glow Jerry curl. And right away, we see that he's kind of a butthole. Like we already knew he was because he didn't give anything in the collection plate, but he comes across more so of a butthole as time goes on. We find out that he is the heir to the Soul Glow fortune, and he even gives Cleo tickets to the Jets gang. So he's in good with Cleo and is, I guess, buying Cleo's affection, you know, 
trying to get closer to Lisa. So Lisa and Daryl talk and Lisa asks him if he's the one who put a huge wad of cash in the donation plate at the rally. She doesn't let him finish responding and assumes it was him and he ends up taking credit. So he's not a good person. (laughs) And they make that really obvious. So Daryl and Lisa leave, but not before Daryl throws his mixed shake at Akeem and gets it all over his uniform, much to uh, Simi's... (laughs) Uh, approval. (laughs) Daryl also says that he has two extra tickets to a St. John's game if Lisa's sister wants to double date and that comes back a little bit later. So now we're back to the barbershop. Akeem goes back to the barbershop. They call him Kunta Kente and he asks for a jerry curl to better fit in with what he thinks Lisa likes. And then randomly Clarence tells this lying story the story full of lies about getting punched by Martin Luther King Jr. due to mistaken identity in 1962 (laughs) so him and another person in the shop another barber is like you ain't never met Martin Luther King (laughs) Martin Luther it's like Martin Luther King or Martin Luther the King it's so funny it's so funny to me. But Clarence finds out why he wants a Jerry Curl. And he's like, I'm not going to do that for you. Like Clarence says the key to getting an American woman is to get in good with her father. I personally think that that's bad advice. I think it may have the opposite effect depending on the daughter's relationship with her father. But yeah, the next day at work, Akeem tries to take some of that advice and tries to bond with Mr. McDowell by talking about football, but Akeem doesn't understand the game and his explanation makes Mr. McDowell think that he's on drugs. So that didn't really go well either. Louis Anderson basically says the rich guys get all the chicks to Akeem. Like, how can you compete if, you know, you don't have a lot of money, right? So now Akeem is just going everywhere for advice. I kind of didn't notice that when I was taking notes for this movie. But anytime anybody says anything, he just kind of follows their advice. Oh, you need to go to like a church to get women. He goes to the church. You need to get in good with her father. He tries to impress her father. Oh, you need to be rich. Guess what he does? He sends her expensive earrings. So in this next scene, we're at the McDowell house and Lisa's sister is dancing. They have a really nice house and Lisa's sister signs for a package for Lisa and starts to open it. But it's these big gaudy earrings. They look like rubies and diamonds. And there's a card that says it's from an admirer, not Daryl, which I thought was really funny. The sister's name is Patrice and Patrice thinks Lisa has a man on the side if she's getting expensive gifts. So it's the next day at McDowell's and Simi is mad that he has not had sex since they arrived. As Lisa is walking in, Simi urges Akeem to accelerate the timeline so he can go home. He's like, say the earrings came from you. And then we find out that the earrings were $500,000. $500,000 is a lot of money today five hundred thousand dollars in 1988 is a lot of freaking money Akeem makes fun of Simi for being spoiled and Lisa introduces Akeem to Patrice as a student and then he has to make up a university and he doesn't really like have his background story all the way together but they invite him to the St. John's game which is college basketball as Patrice's date so even though he's not going with the woman he wants to go with at least he'll be in her presence right and get to know her a little bit better so they are at Madison Square Garden watching this college basketball game 
And Patrice is a freak. She starts filling on Akeem under his jacket. And then Daryl starts making these horrible and insensitive jokes, African stereotypes like not wearing clothes or playing chase the monkey. And Lisa's actually really embarrassed by him. Akeem is being sexually assaulted by Patrice and he goes to the bathroom during halftime to get away from her. And one of the stadium workers actually spots him and bows down to him as the Prince of Zamunda. This guy is like a Zamundan immigrant. And he comes back later and gets a co-worker to grab a picture of him and Prince Akeem while Daryl and Lisa watch in amazement. And Eddie Murphy is like, oh, that's just a man I met in the restroom. <laughs> yeah, his cover almost got blown. So it's the next day at McDowell's and Daryl wants Lisa to quit her job to be a housewife, but she likes working, which is another thing that Akeem admires about her and that they have in common. Akeem mops his way over and Lisa apologizes for Daryl's behavior the night before and she asks him to sit down and talk to her. She admires how he mops the floor with pride and then he spouts off some Nietzsche and we find out that he's learned. A youngish Samuel L. Jackson comes in to rob the place with a shotgun and he holds the place up. And Daryl is scared and cowering, but Akeem and Sammy jump into action with an unscrewed mop hample and their defensive training. And Sam, you know, pulls out a switchblade, but Sammy has the gun and he's like, freeze you disease rhinoceros pizzle and crisis is averted. So Cleo comes to say thanks for helping out. Akeem saves the day, okay? He gets to look like a hero in front of his girlfriend and her boyfriend looks like a coward. This is kind of like a major turning point in the story. So Cleo comes out to say thank you for helping out and for, you know, destroying this guy who came in and has robbed us five times before. Samuel Jackson hitting the same McDowell's five times in a row is hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, Cleo invites Simi and Akeem to a get together at his home. But he makes them valets for the guest cars and the bartender. He doesn't say that he's inviting them there to work. It's like, Mr. McDowell is Mr. Krabs before Mr. Krabs existed. <laughs> I could totally see Mr. Krabs inviting SpongeBob and Squidward over to his house for a party and making them work at the party. That's such a Mr. Krabs thing to do. That's so funny. So... There's a party at the McDowell's house. We kind of don't know what the occasion is, but we figure it out later. Cleo invites Akeem into his home on like an inspiration tip. And he's like, Akeem, if you work hard enough, you can have a house like this in like 20 or 30 years. That's pretty funny considering how Prince Akeem has like a palace and whatnot. But his house has a wet bar, which is fancy. And Akeem is the bartender while Simi is the valet. So they zoom out on the weirdest picture on Mr. McDowell's wall. And I was trying to figure out what's the significance of this picture because it took them a long time to zoom out. It looks like it's supposed to be from like the 1920s or 1930s with this beautiful black woman and a black and red 
plaid like shirt serving burgers at a fancy establishment. I have never noticed this picture before, but I'm guessing it was supposed to be a depiction of the old G McDowell who started the family business of selling burgers decades ago. This is hilarious. And like I said, I had never noticed it before, but I guess it's like their way of paying homage to like a great grandparent or a grandparent who started the McDowell's burger making fortune, which is freaking hilarious. It's very funny. So the party kicks off. There's lots of people there. Daryl talks to Akeem and basically says why he didn't help during the robbery. And he insults Akeem's African roots again. And he says that women want a man to take charge and tell him what to do. And, you know, Jerry Curl Daryl's parents and grandma are present at the party with their Jerry Curls as well. And <laughs> Daryl wants a word with Cleo. So Daryl and Cleo are about to make an announcement and Cleo grabs the attention in the room and invites Daryl's family to stand with him as well. So when Daryl's mom, dad, and grandma leave the couch, we see that the Jericho juice stained the couch, <laughs> which is hilarious. So Cleo says that Lisa just accepted a proposal from Daryl, a marriage proposal from Daryl, and that this party is basically an engagement party. And Lisa is pissed off because she did not accept a marriage proposal from Daryl. And Reverend Brown starts congratulating her, but she takes Daryl to the side to chastise him for trying to plan her life without her. And he's like, but baby, it's our engagement party. Now, this part of the story is probably the least realistic to me. I understand that they were trying to draw these parallels between Prince Akeem's marital arrangement or arranged marriage to Lisa's kind of arranged marriage. But there's nothing anywhere in my brain that can literally even conceive the idea that a father and a boyfriend would plan an engagement behind the daughter and girlfriend's back. And instead of asking her and then announcing after she's answered, just announce it as if she has answered already. Did Daryl lie to the dad and say that she already said yes? I don't know. Like, I feel like this is the least believable piece of the story. Again, I understand they're trying to draw the comparison between, you know, the two different marriages or whatever, but it's like, no, no, this is not the way it happens. So Akeem witnesses this whole thing and he goes outside to the swing in the yard to bring her a coat and she invites him to sit down and she says she doesn't want to be pressured into marriage and Akeem identifies with her. Lisa likes opening up to Akeem before he has to go back to work. But he's like slow rolling this plan. Lisa also says that she thinks that Patrice is into him, but he's mm, not quite feeling it. Okay. So it's the next day. Sammy wants to skip work. He hates living like a peasant. And Akeem says, if you want to live better, fix up the place a little bit. But you need to come to work with me because I'm making headway with Lisa. So they do end up going to work. And Louie tells them the demoralizing career advancement plan at McDowell's. <laughs> 
It sounds so bad. Lisa and Akeem keep talking about her man problems and she feels like she owes him for all the trauma dumping. So they make plans for him to cook for her at his very poor apartment. And you know, she doesn't care that he's poor. But a problem occurs when they get to his apartment with groceries and it's been renovated and retouched with all this fancy stuff by Sammy. There's a TV, there's a better bed, there's a hot tub, a desk, shelves, decorations, paint, like the wall is painted. Like they patched up the holes in the walls and all that stuff. Like Akeem doesn't let Lisa in and is really upset with Simi. And Akeem takes Simi's pocket money and puts it in a McDonald's bag and says that if Simi doesn't have any money, he can't cause trouble. It's the age old adage, no money, no problems. <laughs> so Akeem makes up an excuse for them to leave. And Lisa assumes it's because he's ashamed of being poor. And so they go out to eat. So they walk and talk and they come across two homeless men and Akeem gives them the money from Simi. The two men are Randolph and Mortimer from Trading Places and they're back and this is the cool tie-in to Trading Places. So they have dinner at a romantic restaurant and Randolph and Mortimer thank him from outside of the window for the wonderful donation. And Lisa notes how he impacts people and how he has this inner glow that's almost regal. Hmm. And he forms more lies about his life. He's a goat herder. It's a family business. The check comes. They argue over who's going to get the check. And Lisa is like, if I wanted a wealthy guy, I'd be with Daryl and not you. And then they dance to To Be Loved by Jackie Wilson. To be loved, to be loved. Oh, I want to feel it. <laughs> So Lisa asks about Patrice and Daryl. They're getting all snuggled up during this romantic song. And she's like, you know, what about Patrice? What about Daryl? And Akeem is like, I'm not interested in either one of them. And they make out on the dance floor. And, you know, this is part of the whole slow burn situation. I don't know how long it's been at this point, probably two weeks or so or whatever. And so he just kind of slowly won over her affections. And it was really cute for things to not just be like right away. He didn't purposely try to steal her away from Daryl or anything like that. He just kind of gave her a nice gift and rescued her from a robber with a shotgun and, you know, had good conversations with her, you know, listen to her, console her when people were trying to take over her life. He just was really a nice guy to her. So that's sweet. So next thing we know, we see Simi at a Western Union requesting a wire from the king for 300,000 US dollars because they are in dire straits. He keeps upping his request and the worker there is kind of in disbelief. But Simi returns to the apartment to find annoying Patrice hanging out inside the apartment. She sees all the cool upgrades and demands an explanation. She's like, y'all don't make enough money at McDonald's to afford all this. What y'all got going on? So Simi is forced to explain while Akeem walks home on cloud nine singing to be loved at the top of his lungs <laughs> everybody wants him to shut up but he's a man in love and he's getting what he wants so you can sense his excitement so Akeem makes it home and Patrice and Simi are making out and Patrice basically disses Akeem and calls Simi sweet prince and kisses him goodbye and Simi told a big fat lie and basically said that he was the prince and Akeem was his peasant servant so it's the next day and Daryl is sending tons of flowers to try to get back in Lisa's good graces. And her father, Cleo, is trying to convince her to take him back. Cleo doesn't want his daughter with an African goat hoarder where she's going to struggle like he had to do with his wife, Florida, on good times. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
People assume that a better life means more money and that's really only part of the story, okay? It reminds me of the scripture, Proverbs 17, 1. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. The peace in knowing that you did the right thing or that you followed your heart is its own reward. And that plays a big part in happiness too. It's not just about money. So Lisa heads to a museum with Akeem and Akeem calls the super to trade apartments for the improved one. So he's going to get the crappy super's apartment and the super is going to get the nice apartment the new and improved apartment that Simi pimped out. So Akeem is really excited to go on a date, but we see a caravan of motorcycles and limos arriving along with the aides, the flower bearers, and all the rest of Zamunda. And James Earl Jones steps out like a boss wearing a lion pelt, and he goes into the barbershop and finds out that Akeem lives on the fifth floor. Mind you, this building has no elevator, so he lives on the fifth floor of this apartment. And they go there to find the super in the hot tub. So the king sees an employee of the month photo and the king is mad that his son has a job so they go to the correct department where they find a frightened semi who first slams the door in the royal party's face because he's so scared (laughs) but he finally opens the door back up and the king says i came because your telegram made it sound like y'all were like dying over here like what the heck is going on and he's like really pissed at semi that he didn't do a better job of looking after akeem so semi gets punished by being confined to a suite in the waldorf astoria where he's going to be bathed by the royal bathers and dressed in nice clothes like what a punishment So we cut to the museum date. This museum, which is the New York City Museum of African Art, just happens to have an exhibit on Zamunda. And it turns out that the artifacts actually belong to Akeem's family. Akeem spends two seconds in this museum before throwing Lisa against the wall to kiss her so she doesn't see him in a displayed picture of the royal family of Zamunda, which is actually a picture that appears to have been taken at Akeem's engagement party, which is a little weird. Like that engagement party happened two weeks ago. No way they're circulating that picture right now in 1988. They couldn't find a different picture of them or at least dress the actors up in different clothes so that it didn't look like y'all used the same picture from the engagement party. Like, I don't know. Anyways, we see that Lisa is also wearing the half a million dollar earrings at this time. So they skip out of there so that he doesn't get revealed. So later on, we're back at McDowell's and Cleo is inviting Daryl to his house at 9 p.m. so he can try to get Lisa and Daryl back together. The phone handset that he's using is actually this burger that folds, which is hilarious. But when he gets off the phone, we see him sneakily perusing the McDonald's operating manual. (laughs) So he is actually stealing ideals from McDonald's, which is funny. So he's alerted that the king is there and the queen is there too. And Cleo is shocked to see that Akeem is a prince king Jaffe is pissed and he doesn't want akeem to know that he's there the king and queen don't seem pleased that akeem is with a common woman and oha the aide gives cleo some money for his trouble and it's the zamundan pound it's like a hundred pounds that has akeem's face on it what's the exchange rate that's what i want to know <laughs> But anyways, Lisa and Akeem arrive at his apartment. They're back from their date 
and they see rose petals on the ground. So a king panics because he knows what's up and he rushes to take her home now that he knows that his father's in town. So he takes her home and then Cleo invites him in for a drink and it's really overly welcoming. Like come sit down, have a drink and he's like, mm, like you're being extra nice to me. What the hell's going on? But Cleo sneaks away to call the king to alert him of Akeem's whereabouts. And then the doorbell rings and it's Daryl, who if you remember, Cleo invited him over. Cleo ends up rejecting Daryl because he is now not the best prospect for his daughter. But Daryl keeps knocking on the door like, hey, you invited me over. What the heck is going on? Cleo trips on the stairs <laughs> trying to go to the door, <laughs> which is actually very funny. And he sticks their small poodle on them. Cleo is acting a fool. He's calling Akeem's son. And Akeem is like, when, you know, Cleo is out of the room, we're not looking. Akeem is like, tell your dad I said bye. Like, I got to go. So Akeem leaves and Lisa is like, daddy, what's going on? And he finally cracks and he's like, he's rich. He's got his own money. And then he shows Lisa the Zamundan hundred pound bill and he breaks the news that Akeem is a prince and Cleo is happy that she hit the jackpot but Lisa's mad again just she got another dude lying to her and of course it starts raining as she's looking disappointedly out of the window so it was at this point in the story that I realized that Prince Akeem is the ultimate catfish. This man came to America trying to find love and built a whole life around poverty. He lived in a poor neighborhood, wore poor clothes, got a low wage job, lied about his education, his family background. He had a friend there to support him in his lie. And he went out of his way to make sure that she didn't know who he really was. And then when the proof of who you really are is on another continent and you have a friend to back you up, the plan is foolproof, okay? At least at least Lisa could be pleasantly surprised when Neve shows up and <laughs> Neve and Cammie show up to expose that he's actually not a poor African exchange student and that he's a royal prince who has money out the wazoo as opposed to being disgusted and turned off by his true self. Is Prince Akeem the ultimate catfish? I actually think so. Okay, so we're at the climax of the film now. Akeem goes to the Waldorf Astoria where he finds Simi being bathed and the royal family ends up going to the McDowell house. And since they didn't really have cell phones in 1988, he couldn't call while they were on their way to let them know that Akeem had left his house. And it looks like he also didn't want them to know that Akeem had left. It seems like he's one of those guys that really wants to be in with the rich folks and it seems like a trauma response from growing up in poverty and he's almost to the point of groveling really the king is mad because Akeem isn't there and demands to speak to Lisa so Lisa and the king speak alone in Lisa's room and the king is like did he tell you about his wife that we chose for him and she's like what a wife and he's like well they ain't married yet but they will be he can't be serious about you and so lisa gets so upset that she leaves the house after that conversation and cleo confronts the king about upsetting lisa and the king is basically like how much money will it take to buy you off and your daughter he goes up as high as two million dollars two million dollars Cleo says, forget it. When the king says that both Cleo and Lisa are beneath him. And Cleo says, this is America, Jack. You say one more word about Lisa and I'll break my foot off in your royal ass. 
that line was improvised. <laughs> and I think it's a decent scene. Throughout the money, Mr. McDowell is really like Mr. Krabs, okay? Like he's overly concerned with money. He's stealing ideas from McDonald's. He's doing shameless plugs at the Black Awareness Rally. He's been super eager to marry his daughter off to rich families. But in this moment, when he's literally offered millions of dollars, he chooses to stand on principle and defend his daughter, even against royalty. And it shows that he does have some scruples and maybe he's not like Mr. Krabs after all. If Mr. Krabs was in this situation, I think he would have taken the $2 million, even if it was for Pearl. <laughs> so I enjoyed seeing this scene because it showed a different side of Mr. McDowell. So Patrice comes out into the living room where all the action is going down to say that, no, the prince is in love with me. And Akeem and Simi walk in and Patrice identifies Simi as the prince. And so Simi's lie finally catches up with him and Patrice figures out that Akeem is actually the prince and she's mad and says that Lisa always gets the good ones. Now, Patrice's character in this movie is a trope that I recognize. There's a contrast between the socially conscious, you know, social activists and demure Lisa versus the sexually active gold digging Patrice. And it paints a few different pictures for us. Like for some of us, it reminds us of the Madonna whore complex, like a woman a man wants to sleep with versus the woman he wants to have as his wife. And it's also not lost on me that Lisa is a lighter skinned woman while Patrice is a dark skinned woman. In this movie, Patrice gets punished for being overly sexual and a gold digger while Lisa is rewarded for being chaste and reserved. Patrice was an easy target and I find the contrast to be a little yucky and informed by colorism and misogyny. But Akeem confronts his dad and basically says he loves Lisa and his mom, Queen Aeolion, says go to her. So Daryl comes back and Daryl knocks on Patrice's bedroom door from the outside, soaked from the rain. I feel like hours have passed. Why is this man still outside? But Patrice wants to get him out of those wet clothes and Daryl breaks the fourth wall by staring at us because we know what's about to happen next. And we are reassured that even though Patrice lost out on a good guy because of her horny ways, she's still horny and thus has not learned her lesson. So that's nice. So finally we get to this like chase scene. Akeem follows Lisa into the subway and interestingly enough, it doesn't look like Akeem rode the subway the whole time he was in New York. It's a little weird. But Akeem says that he doesn't want to hurt her and she gives back the expensive half a million dollar earrings and says she does not want him or the earrings. She confronts him with the info she got from the king about sowing his royal oats and having a wife and he defends himself and explains why he catfished her. <laughs> as people on the train are watching and Lisa says like you know we're too different and Akeem renounces the throne just like Michael Scott declared bankruptcy <laughs> he just says it out loud it doesn't mean anything <laughs> Lisa's like I don't want you to renounce the throne and Akeem proposes marriage to her and the lady on the train with the funniest accent says to Lisa go on honey take a chance <laughs> I don't know why I love her accent. Anyways, Lisa ends up turning him down and leaves the train. And an older black lady says, if you're really a prince, I'll marry you. And the king gives her $500,000 earrings. Where is she supposed to get the money for these? This lady didn't look like she was of, you know, a lot of means. If I show up, I don't have a lot of means with half a million dollar earrings. How am I going to get the value out of these earrings? without the police being called and asking where I got them from. Like, <laughs> just give me 
me the cash, man, okay? <laughs> it's the next day, and unfortunately, Prince Hakeem is leaving New York City without a queen. His tail is between his legs, and he and the rest of the Zamundan royal party leave New York City queenless. The king and queen are upset with each other. They're having a disagreement, and the queen thinks that the tradition of the arranged marriage is stupid. And then the king is like, well, who am I to change it? And the queen is like, I thought you were the king. And she appealed to his need for power, which apparently worked because it's time for the wedding. And Akeem is facing away from the bride who's covered in a veil, wearing a big pink ball gown with a ginormous bustle and a super long train. The pink color is a little bit ugly, but the dress is okay, especially for 1988. This person is obviously Lisa. I wish they had done more to conceal her identity because when I was looking at her coming down the aisle, I was like, that's obviously Lisa. Like Vanessa Bell Calloway is darker skinned. Like we can tell, we can see her face through the veil. Why didn't they make the veil less sheer so we didn't see who the lady was? <laughs> they didn't do a good job of hiding her identity, but Akeem lifts the veil to see Lisa and he is shocked and happy to see her and Cleo who is there as well. And they make out before they say their I do's for like a long time. And at the end of the movie, they are at their wedding. They leave in a horse-drawn carriage as adoring Zamundans wave and smile. And Lisa decides to lean into being a princess, even though Akeem said that he'd be willing to give it all up for her. So it's a wonderful, lovely ending to a this ain't no rom-com it's y'all is this movie a rom-com is coming to america a rom-com i've never asked myself that question it probably is but anyways there's a post-credit scene that i totally forgot about is showing eddie murphy who's playing the jewish character and he tells a silly joke about a soup spoon and then there's a song called coming to america for it goes oh say can you see i'm coming to america i forgot that songs used to be written specifically for movies well the song is performed by a band called the system but i feel like the bond movies are really the only ones that have retained the tradition of creating songs specifically like for the title of the movie like if you think like ghostbusters Something strange in the neighborhood. Who are you going to call Ghostbusters? Like, we don't really do that anymore. But this is really cool to see that here. I totally forgot about that song and forgot about that L. And that's it, y'all. That's the end of the movie. Uh, at the close of every review, we ask if a movie holds up today and if it's worth a rewatch. I'm going to say yes on the rewatch and like 90% yes on if it holds up. The story is still great and cohesive, but as I mentioned earlier, there are some themes that may not hold up well. Like, where are the real Africans? <laughs> Why did Paula Abdul choreograph the dance instead of a cultural dance expert? Also, according to IMDb, the dance is actually mostly the dance from Thriller from the Michael Jackson music video, but sped up. Why is the dark-skinned, oversexed younger sister villainized in the film? Why didn't Arsenio try harder with his African accent? And off-screen, there's actually a lot of drama, too. The director of the film, John Landis, had manslaughter charges from when he directed Twilight Zone, the movie, where three people died on his watch, including two children. Additionally, a man named Art 
Buckwall sued Paramount Pictures, claiming that they stole the story for him. Buckwall won $150,000 and the writers ended up taking most of the blame, stating that they didn't know that the idea for the movie was stolen. All these things are kind of marks against the movie, but if you can look past them, I think it mostly holds up. It's a story about a catfish who gets the girl and who doesn't love a story where the rich prince gets what he wants. <laughs> But in all seriousness, the story is about taking risks, being patient yet tenacious to get what you want, breaking tradition when it doesn't make sense anymore, and following your heart. It's funny and it's iconic, and I would definitely recommend you rewatch it if you haven't seen it in a while. It's still as much of a love story as it is a comedy, and I think I can definitively say that Coming to America is a rom-com. Over at Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave Coming to America a 73% rating, while the regular audience gave it 85%. I'm low-key not even mad about these ratings. I understand that everything isn't for everybody. Coming to America is so Black that I know that some folks who aren't Black won't understand the humor or setting or cultural significance of this movie. And I can't even blame them for their ignorance. I just feel sorry for the people who can't see the true genius of this film. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Sub Media Reviews, where we discuss coming to America. Next week, I'll be reviewing one of my personal favorites, the 1989 film Uncle Buck featuring John Candy. Peace out. Thanks for listening to Sub Media Reviews. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane just as much as I did. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like me to review next, or if you just want to share your thoughts on today's episode, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest at Sub Media Reviews and on SubMediaReviews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve the show and spread the word to new listeners. So until next time, peace out, home slices. <laughs> <laughs>